Section 15 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. Henry and His Sons, His Downfall and Death, Part 2. A more important effect of the Conference of Ivry was the treaty then drawn up between the two kings, composing their differences and agreeing to submit such points as still remained in dispute to arbitration, and also agreeing to go together on crusade to the Holy Land. Henry probably never had the slightest intention of going to Jerusalem. Indeed, to have done so, leaving behind him such disloyal and unprincipled young scoundrels as his sons had proved themselves to be, would have been madness, even if he had felt any particular interest in the fate of the Holy Land. It will be remembered that the terms upon which Henry was absolved from the guilt of the murder of Becket had included the payment of a large sum for the support of the warriors in Palestine and his personal participation in a crusade for three years. The first of these obligations he would seem to have discharged early in 1177, when the Earl of Essex and other English knights went with Count Philip of Flanders to the east, as William de Brose was sent to carry the king's alms to the Templars. The three years' crusade was commuted for the foundation of three monasteries, and Henry, whose partiality for monastic establishments was by no means marked, contrived to interpret this obligation in a way consistent with the strictest economy. Finding that the secular canons of Waltham had become remiss in the performance of their duties, he ejected them from their collegiate church with the connivance of their dean, Guy Rufus, and replaced them by canons regular of the Augustinian order. In the same way, finding the lives of the nuns at Amesbury far from satisfactory, he turned them out, pensioning off the abbess, and put in their place other nuns from the Norman Abbey of Fontevraud. Both of these transformations took place in the latter half of 1177, and for the next few years the work of rebuilding and enlarging at Waltham and Amesbury were carried on at the king's expense on a fairly generous scale. The third monastery was a new foundation, a small priory of Carthusians established at Widham in Somerset. It would seem that Henry brought over a few brethren from the famous monastery of Chartreuse early in 1175, but gave them no assistance and took no further steps toward establishing them in permanent buildings. The first prior abandoned his post in despair, and the next died soon after his arrival at Widham. Henry then succeeded with much difficulty in persuading the prior of Chartreuse to send Hugh of Avalon, a monk of equal ability and piety. But when he came, he had to endure the same heartbreaking round of delays, evasions, and unfulfilled promises, and it was not until about 1180, when Henry discovered the true worth and charm of his personality and became his close friend, that the king made any endeavor to complete the priory of Widham. It was characteristic of Henry that when the prior expressed his wish for a copy of the Holy Scriptures for the use of his brethren, the king compelled the monks of Winchester to give up an elaborately written copy which they had just completed for their own use, 
and presented it to the grateful monks of Widham. It was equally characteristic of Hugh that when he learnt how the precious volume had been provided, he insisted upon returning it to its rightful owners. The warm affection which the king lavished upon Hugh led many people to believe that the latter was Henry's son, a belief strengthened by a certain likeness observable between the two. And indeed the likeness was not confined to physical traits, for Hugh, with all his piety and austerity, was quick-tempered and quick-witted, and had as keen appreciation for a joke as had Henry himself, and fully realized that a witty as well as a soft answer may turn away wrath. On one occasion, having incurred the king's wrath for excommunicating one of his foresters, he was summoned to Woodstock and found Henry and his courtiers sitting in a circle on the grass. To intimate his displeasure, the king ignored Hugh's salutation and maintained a sulky silence. The attendant nobles following his example, Hugh calmly pushed aside an earl and sat down next to the king, who, incapable of resting idle, called for a needle and thread and began to stitch a torn leather finger-stall which he was wearing on his left hand. Hugh watched him for a minute and then said dryly, How like you are to your cousins of Falaise. The impudence of the remark appealed to Henry, who lay back and roared with laughter, and then explained to such of his courtiers as had not grasped the point that the allusion was to his descent through William the Conqueror from the peasant girl of Falaise a town famous for its skinners and leather workers. This incident occurred after Hugh had been promoted in 1186 from the Priory of Widham to the Bishopric of Lincoln, which had been held from 1173 to 1182 by the king's acknowledged bastard Geoffrey, who, however, preferring rather to fleece than to tend his sheep, had never been consecrated to the sea. It is curious that Henry himself, careless of religion and actively antagonistic to the church, should have lavished his warmest affection upon two men, destined after their death to rank in the calendar of saints. The intimate friend of his early years became St. Thomas of Canterbury, and the chosen associate of the closing years of his reign was destined to become St. Hugh of Lincoln. The claims to saintship of the two men were singularly different. Thomas was one of those arrogant fighting ecclesiastics who identify the cause of the church with themselves and take the kingdom of heaven by violence, while Hugh was a man of peace, one of those who identify themselves with the cause of God, to whom beatification comes as the natural reward for the blessings they have themselves bestowed upon their flocks. Of the two, St. Thomas inevitably made the greater impression upon the popular imagination, and his shrine was a centre of pilgrimage long before St. Hugh had even left his obscure priory for the great bishopric of Lincoln. A great impulse was no doubt given to the adoration of St. Thomas by the events of 1174, when the capture of the King of Scotland followed so immediately upon Henry's penance at Canterbury. In the twelfth century, people did not talk of coincidence, 
or propound elaborate theories that the concentration of henry's mind upon the desire for victory had acted upon the brain centres of Renolf de glanville's subconscious and spurred him on to action they simply accepted as a fact the personal intervention of st thomas and henry himself countenanced that view by going with his royal son on a pilgrimage of thanksgiving to canterbury on the twenty eighth of may eleven seventy five later in that year the young queen margaret visited the shrine for the sake of prayer and it is not improbable that we have the partial fulfilment of her petitions in the birth of a son at paris in june eleven seventy seven but if so the answer to her prayers was only partial for the child lived barely long enough to be christened william and died within three days of its birth a still more remarkable tribute to the fame of st thomas was paid in eleven seventy nine at that time king louis was arranging for the coronation of his son philip then fourteen years old but just before the date fixed for the ceremony the boy fell ill as the result of a hunting misadventure casting about in his mind for a suitable spiritual advocate it was not unnatural that the king's choice should fall upon thomas of canterbury if he had come so effectually to the help of his old adversary henry he might surely be relied upon to assist his old supporter louis king henry readily acceded to the french king's request for a safe conduct and met him in person at dover on the twenty second of august whence the two kings went next to canterbury here king louis offered his petition at the tomb of the saint and enriched the convent with the grant of a yearly render of wine and exemption from customs for goods exported for their use from france on his return to france the king found his son convalescent and in november the postponed coronation took place the younger henry being amongst those present but before this date king louis himself had been struck down with paralysis and after nine months illness he died on the eighteenth of september eleven eighty death was busy about this time richard de lucy the great justiciar had died in july eleven seventy nine at the priory of lesnes which he had founded pope alexander the third died in august eleven eighty one and roger archbishop of york in the following november in louis henry lost an old antagonist but one whose weakness and incompetence had been a source of strength to the english king henry had never pursued an aggressive policy toward france and had never attempted to crush louis or to throw off his nominal suzerainty when their claims clashed as they frequently had done he was content to defeat the attack or outwit the diplomacy of the french king but in the young philip there was growing up a far more formidable adversary and one who could neither be hoodwinked nor driven from the field without difficulty for the time however henry's relations with the young french king were almost paternal in the spring of eleven eighty henry intervened to reconcile philip and his uncles of the house of blois and in july of the following year he patched up a peace between philip and his wife's uncle count philip of flanders this peace was broken before the end of the year when count philip 
formed a coalition against the king of france and he might have fared badly if the younger henry who had remained in normandy after his father had gone back to england had not come to the rescue peace was again patched up between france and flanders by henry in march eleven eighty two and the two philips united with henry in intervening on behalf of the latter's son-in-law henry the lion of saxony who had incurred the enmity of the emperor frederick and had been sentenced to seven years banishment as a result of this intervention the duke's sentence was substantially reduced and when he came to normandy with his wife and children he was warmly welcomed and liberally provided for by henry conspicuous as was henry's success in dealing with foreign princes his failure when dealing with his own sons was equally conspicuous he could act as peacemaker between france and flanders but from eleven seventy six onwards his sons were continually at war sometimes assisting one another to suppress rebellious vassals at other times quarrelling among themselves richard in particular was continually fighting in poitou where his arrogance and licentiousness had made him extremely unpopular with his subjects matters came to a crisis early in eleven eighty three when upon richard's refusing to do homage for poitou to the younger henry the latter with his brother geoffrey joined the discontented poitevin and made war upon richard king henry came to the help of richard and advanced to limoges where he had a narrow escape from being shot by his son's soldiers the rebellious princes relying upon their father's affection obtained a succession of truces which they broke without compunction whenever it suited their purpose ill-treating his messengers and plundering his supporters geoffrey stripped the shrine of saint marshal at limoges in order to pay his mercenaries and the young king finding his plans going astray took an oath at that same shrine to go on crusade his father endeavoured to persuade him to renounce the rash vow but when he found him apparently intent upon the project generously promised to equip him he repaid the generous offer by abandoning the scheme and indulging in a plundering foray stripping the monastery of Grandmont, the one religious house for which his father had displayed an affection toward the end of may eleven eighty three the young king fell ill but this did not deter him from sacking the famous shrine of roquemadour on his way back from this sacrilegious exploit he was obliged to stop at martel as his fever had much increased and soon developed into dysentery realizing that it was likely to end in death he sent for his father but henry naturally suspecting a trap would not come though he sent a sapphire ring to his son as a token of his affection and possibly with the hope that the mystic curative qualities of that precious stone might prove beneficial on the eleventh of june the young king died expressing a pious penitence which would have been more edifying had it been displayed earlier and commissioning the faithful william marshall who had just been recalled to his court after an undeserved period of exile to perform for him the two years crusade which he had sworn to undertake 
the death of the unfilial and unprincipled Henry, had followed so close upon his sacrilegious foliation of St. Amadour, that it might well have been considered a divine judgment, and it is almost incredible that even his most devoted partisans could have proclaimed him a saint, yet such was the case, and a few audacious and imaginative adherents even asserted that miracles had been wrought by him. His liberality, good fellowship, and manly courage, which showed itself in his addiction to the tournament, a form of sport so far from saintly that it was under the papal ban, had made him friends who mourned his loss. A still larger number regretted the removal of a tool so useful for undermining the influence of the hated King of England. The one man who sorrowed for him most sincerely was the father, against whom he had sinned so persistently. Within a month of the young king's death, the rebellion which he had fomented was at an end. During the latter half of 1183, Henry appears to have made an uneventful tour through his continental dominions, but in the spring of 1184 we find him negotiating for the remarriage of the Count of Flanders, sending his own royal yacht to fetch the bride, a daughter of the King of Portugal, and conducting her from La Rochelle to the Flemish border and more or less as a result of this marriage, we find him called upon to interfere once more between the King of France and the Count of Flanders to procure peace. Immediately afterwards, on the 10th of June, 1184, Henry crossed once more to England after an absence of two years. The next six months were largely taken up with the choice of a successor to Archbishop Richard, who had died in the preceding February. At last, after several names had been suggested by the Canterbury monks, only to be rejected by the king, Bishop Baldwin of Worcester was elected on the 16th December. The year 1185 opened with the arrival at Canterbury of Heraclius, Patriarch of Jerusalem, charged by Baldwin, the head of the tottering kingdom of Jerusalem, with an appeal to Henry for help. On the 18th of March, Henry gave formal audience to Heraclius, who offered him the keys of the Holy Sepulchre and the crown of Jerusalem, and produced a letter from the Pope urging a new crusade. By the advice of his council, Henry declared his inability to go in person, and he also declined to accept the crown for any of his sons, but he promised assistance in men and money, and large numbers of his nobles took the cross. A month later, the king and the patriarch passed over together into Normandy, and on the 1st of May they had an interview with King Philip of France, who took up the same line as Henry had done, so that Heraclius had to return to his master with the promise indeed of assistance, but disappointed in his hopes of obtaining an influential leader. As soon as the interview was over, Henry had to turn his attention to his quarrelsome son Richard, untaught by experience the king had continued to provoke his sons against one another and against himself striving to wrest aquitaine from richard for the benefit of john and then setting john and geoffrey to fight their elder brother this quarrel had been composed for a time but richard was now attacking the lands of his brother geoffrey and in order to quiet him henry sent for queen eleanor 
the rightful owner of Poitou, and forced Richard to surrender the province into his mother's hands. This had the desired effect of restoring order, and in August 1186, Geoffrey was killed in a tournament at Paris, regretted by none except his father and Philip of France. In May 1186, Henry, who was an inveterate matchmaker, had arranged for the marriage of King William of Scotland with his cousin Ermengarde, daughter of Richard, Viscount of Beaumont. The marriage took place at Woodstock on the 5th of September, Henry's wedding present taking the shape of the castle of Edinburgh. But before it was celebrated, the two kings had marched north together in July, and compelled Ronald, son of Uchtred, the usurping lord of Galloway, to submit to Henry's judgment. But while Henry's relations with his old adversary of Scotland were thus satisfactory, there was growing friction between him and Philip of France. The questions of the dower due to the young king's widow Margaret, and of the marriage of Philip's other sister Alais to Richard, had been debated with acrimony on several occasions, and the action of the English constable of Gisors in destroying a fortress in process of erection on the French border and killing the son of the French knight in charge of the work in October 1186 had further exasperated Philip. For the time the storm blew over, but in May 1187, after an ineffective endeavor to come to terms with Philip, Henry prepared for war. The French king besieged Richard and John at Chateauroux, and Henry had to come to their rescue. But a pitched battle was avoided by the interposition of Pope Urban III, whose anxiety for the fate of Palestine made him particularly desirous of peace in Europe, and a truce of two years was agreed upon on the 23rd of June. Immediately afterwards, Philip began to cultivate Richard's friendship, hoping to use him against his father, as he had done young Henry and Geoffrey. Richard swallowed the bait and went off with Philip, living for some time in the closest intimacy with him, ignoring his father's remonstrances, and even plundering his treasury at Chinon. But after a while he came to a better mind and returned to his allegiance. End of section 15